Please open your Bibles to our text for this morning, which is Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. And let's begin our time this morning by reading our passage together. Uh, Of course, we're in the midst of a series I've entitled, An Enigmatic Messiah. In this series, we've been exploring this section of Matthew, Matthew 11 to 13, where Matthew discusses and explains the crowd's reaction to Jesus as the people struggle to come to grips with Jesus' Messianic identity. We hit a significant turning point in Jesus' ministry back in Matthew 12, when the religious leaders responded to Jesus' healing of a blind and mute demoniac by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. This blasphemy signaled the certainty of Israel's rejection of Christ. It indicated that the wrestling over Jesus' identity was essentially over, at least it was in Galilee. There the religious leaders had landed with a firm rejection of Jesus, and unfortunately as they went, so would go the crowds who trusted these leaders implicitly. Jesus responds to this rejection with a series of parables in Matthew 13. The purpose of these parables, as we've covered over the last few weeks, was to reveal certain aspects about the kingdom to one section of the crowds, while at the same time hiding it from another section of the crowds. They were aimed at revealing the secrets of the kingdom to insiders, to those who responded positively to Jesus' kingdom message, while at the same time hiding those very same truths from those who rejected that message. And this is where we're at right now. We're studying the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. So far we've studied the parables of the sower, the weeds, the mustard seed, and the leaven, each of which explained different aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And now in today's passage we're going to look at two more parables, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value. These parables occur in verses 44 to 46 of Matthew 13. Once again, let's begin by reading our passage together. Again, that's Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Jesus continues his explanation of the kingdom of heaven by saying this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In 1989, a financial analyst from Philadelphia walked into a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, looking for a deal. What he found instead was a rather dreary painting of a country scene inside a gilded and ornately carved frame that he thought looked sort of interesting. The picture in its frame was only $4, so he bought it. And he took it home with hopes of eventually removing the painting in order to make use of the frame. However, the frame itself was fragile, so fragile that as this man started to investigate the painting and remove the canvas from the frame, it essentially crumbled in his hands. It started to look as if the purchase would be a total loss, a complete waste of $4. When the buyer began to examine the backing that was used for this painting. And he discovered that it was an old, folded up, print copy of the Declaration of Independence. 
It wasn't a significant discovery, at least not at first. The man figured it probably dated to sometime in the, in the 1800s. Still, it was enough to satisfy his curiosity. And so he set it aside and, and showed it to a friend of his who was a, a collector of Civil War memorabilia. Upon seeing the document, the friend immediately urged the man to get it appraised, which he did. And it was then that he discovered that he had made a life-changing find. This printed copy of the Declaration of Independence, which had served as the backing of a $4 flea market painting, was one of about 200 copies of the Declaration of Independence. It was printed in Philadelphia by a printer uh, by the name of John Dunlap on July 4th, 1776. This buyer had discovered what was then only the 24th known existing copy of the very first printing of the Declaration of Independence. Its estimated value, according to the appraiser, well, somewhere between $800,000 and $1.2 million. In fact, it would sell at auction just two years later for $2.42 million, which was at the time a, a record price for any uh, piece of auctioned Americana. It's stunning to consider how a man could just walk into a flea market and purchase a national treasure for just $4 without even realizing it, and yet such things can happen. Believe it or not, they do happen, and probably more frequently than you realize. In fact, just last week after church, I was talking with Lori, and she was telling me that one time she was appraising quilts when someone came and laid a $10,000 quilt on her table, and they too had made that purchase in, was it like a flea market or an antique store? And how much of it was it, $65 or... $10 they bought this quilt for, and it was a $10,000 quilt. Now, obviously, that's a long way off of $2.42 million, but I think we'd all agree we'd take that kind of a deal if we could find it. We'd spend $10 to make $10,000. In fact, we've probably all daydreamed of that kind of scenario. Maybe you've even stumbled across something in your attic before and wondered, I wonder how much that could be worth, hoping that the answer would be a lot. We all want to experience that sort of unexpected windfall. Well, suppose it did happen. Suppose you were the appraiser, and as you rummaged through some random flea market, you realized that you suddenly had in front of you uh, a document or a quilt or some other antique worth potentially millions of dollars. What would you do then? What would be your next course of action? Would you, would you just snatch it up off the table and immediately rush to the counter going, here, take my money, uh, I'll buy this right now. Would you maybe casually tuck it under your arm and, and pretend to browse through the rest of the store with your heart racing so as not to alert the owner of the value of that item? Suppose the owner did know it was worth something. Say it was on, the item was on sale for $50,000. But you knew that you could sell it for a hundred times that amount at auction. What would you do then? Would you just go home and, and mope over the fact that you don't have that kind of cash? Would you mourn over the lost opportunity? Or would you find yourself scrambling to do whatever you could to liquidate assets and raise whatever cash you could to buy. I mean, sell your car, sell your home, sell your clothes, sell your dog, sell your blood, maybe a kidney, (laughs) right? What would you do? 
Well, in a sense, that's exactly the sort of scenario that Jesus presents to us in these two parables this morning. Once again, here in Matthew 13, Jesus is telling these parables about the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching His disciples about various aspects of the kingdom through these parables that are designed to hide truth from one set of people while revealing it to others. He's already told the parable of the sower, which explained the the reason for the different types of responses that people give to the message of the kingdom. He's told the parable of the weeds, which explained that there would be an unexpected delay in the arrival of the kingdom, that, that, that judgment wouldn't inaugurate this kingdom immediately as the disciples had expected. It would be delayed. Jesus also told the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. These parables essentially explained why the kingdom would be delayed. The kingdom was not intended to be a purely Jewish affair. It was meant to incorporate all the nations of the earth. The kingdom's domain was to extend over the whole earth, and this naturally required a period of time for the gospel to go out to the nations before judgment happened. Well, here in the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, Jesus teaches another lesson about the kingdom And this lesson pertains to the extreme value of the kingdom. Essentially, these parables explain that entry into the kingdom is worth anything else. There's no price too high, no cost too great for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is a treasure of surpassing value. Jesus teaches this point through two different parables, each with a different shade of meaning. In both parables, there is a man who comes across an incredible find, a a tremendous windfall. These were discoveries that would have been very much like the discoveries I spoke of just a few moments ago. Uh, In the first parable, there is a man who comes across a treasure in a field. Jesus doesn't necessarily say anything about the size of the treasure, but regardless, we're led to believe it's a significant find, so we can assume that this is a treasure of considerable value. There were not banks in the ancient world, at least not in the way that we think of them, and this meant that the safest place for a person to keep their money was often in the ground. If you had a great amount of money that that could be stolen, or if maybe your country was being invaded by an army, the best thing you could do to protect that money would be to bury it in the ground where no one knew where to look for it. This is what people often did in the ancient world. And of course, this meant that great fortunes would sometimes be just forgotten in the ground for one reason or another. A man buries a a treasure for safekeeping while he's on a a journey, and then he never comes back. Or he puts it in the ground to keep it out of the hands of an invading army, and then he's subsequently killed by that army. And the treasure is just left there in the ground, hidden. No one knows where to look for it, or perhaps they don't even know that such a fortune, fortune even exists. Well, in this first parable, a man finds one of these treasures in a field. Presumably, he's working in a field. He's probably working on the field of some type of rich landowner. And as he's working, probably digging, he ends up finding this remarkable treasure hidden in the ground. In the second parable, there is a man who finds a pearl of tremendous value on sale in the marketplace. Pearls were among the most valued of all jewels in the ancient world. They were not only extremely beautiful, but they were very hard to procure. Some pearls in the ancient world would have been worth the equivalent to even millions of dollars today. This merchant 
or emporos in the Greek, which is the word from which we derive the English word emporium. This man is a wholesale dealer. Doubtless, he is a man of considerable wealth, and he is experienced in buying and selling various types of goods, presumably jewelry. Well, as this wholesale dealer is rummaging through the marketplace looking for items that he could buy and then sell somewhere else at a marked-up price, he comes across this incredibly expensive pearl. Jesus doesn't say why this pearl is expensive. One would think that it's maybe the size of the pearl, maybe it's the coloring or the quality of the pearl. Regardless, the idea is that this pearl is very expensive, and we would assume it's very expensive because it is very rare. So there are two different men who come across these incredible finds. And in both instances, it would appear that these men represent individuals who have discovered the truth of the kingdom of heaven. If you notice, in the first story, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure. In the second story, Jesus says that it is like a merchant. In both stories, the idea is that the kingdom of heaven is compared to this incredible find that takes place. And in context, we can easily understand this to be in reference to the kingdom of heaven. The man in each story is discovering this item of remarkable worth, and this is to be compared to those who have come to perceive the truth of Jesus' kingdom message. Wisdom, knowledge, is is often compared to treasures or jewelry in some form or fashion throughout the Scriptures. Well, if you recall, Jesus' Messianic identity, that knowledge, that information has been presented as a somewhat hidden reality throughout this section of Matthew. I mean, chapter 11 begins with this question from John the Baptist where John asks Jesus if he's the one that they have been expecting or if they should be looking for someone else. And in Jesus' response to that question, he explains that he is the one that Israel has been expecting, but that the people have not responded to his message in the way that they needed uh, for him to act in the way that everyone expected. And then he goes on to address the factors that led to this rejection from the crowds before inviting the people to believe. In chapter 12, controversy breaks out over Jesus' handling of the Sabbath. It seems like Jesus is teaching people that it is okay to break the law of Moses, which would have been completely contrary to everything the Old Testament taught about the Messiah. Uh, Of course, Jesus goes on to prove that his handling of the law was accurate and justified, but when there is a, a potential in the wake of this for a dispute, for matters to break out, Jesus withdraws. He doesn't stand and fight for his point. He pulls away. Right after that, the blasphemy of the Spirit occurs. In that instance, after Jesus casts a demon out of a a blind and mute demoniac, the people begin to even consider that perhaps Jesus is the Messiah, saying, can this be the Son of David? But then, of course, the Pharisees jump in right away and say that Jesus only has power to cast out demons because He was granted that power by Satan who was using Him to deceive the people. So in that instance, the religious leaders are actively covering up the reality of Christ from those who are witnessing the signs and wonders He was performing. This is the active theme throughout Matthew 11 and 12. The identity of Christ is somewhat veiled. The crowds are wrestling with what to do about Him. And of course, the hiddenness of Jesus' ministry only intensifies in Matthew 13. 
when Jesus then begins to speak in parables. Again, in these parables, Jesus is is actually explaining a lot that would answer a lot of questions that the crowds might have about him. I mean, if someone were, were on the fence about Jesus because they were wondering maybe why he wasn't being accepted or they're wondering why he isn't coming in a blaze of righteous wrath, the parables would have answered these kinds of questions. And in this way, they could have helped someone choose which side of the fence they wanted to be on. But the problem, obviously, is that these answers were delivered in the forms of parables that could really only be understood or accepted by those who were already responsive to Jesus' message. So again, we see the truth of Jesus veiled, hidden, hard to perceive. Again, He is an enigmatic Messiah. The men in these parables represent those who, one way or another, suddenly realize just what they have there in front of them. They have uncovered Jesus' identity. They have found the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven suddenly, unexpectedly, has been revealed before them. This guy they've heard about, this this rabbi, this miracle worker, They're finally starting to understand that He's more than all of that. He's God's King. His Messiah. This is the scenario that these parables represent. The men in these two parables represent those who have suddenly come about this magnificent find, this fantastic treasure. They've come to the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. There's this refrain that Jesus issues a couple of times in Matthew 13 where He says, He who has ears, let him hear. These men are those people. They are those who have heard the parables that Jesus has delivered in this chapter and they get it. They heard what Jesus said about John the Baptist and they could see His point. When they heard Jesus' approach to the Sabbath, they understood what He was driving at and it made sense to them. When they saw or heard about the exorcism of the demoniac, they knew what it meant, regardless of what the scribes and the Pharisees had to say. And as Jesus worked through these parables, they could perceive the the basics of what Jesus had to say, and it actually clarified their understanding of the kingdom of heaven even further. They're now realizing the full significance of what they have in front of them. This isn't just a man. This is the Messiah. Here is the kingdom of heaven standing here among them in their very midst. The parables therefore go on to illustrate what a person should do about this truth once it's been discovered. They should sell everything to buy it. They should go all in and do whatever it takes to apply this truth to their lives. Now, if you stop to think about it, these men are actually very different, different, very different kinds of men. And this is helpful because it allows us to see the, the appropriate response to the kingdom from two different angles. Like we saw with the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, there's probably a temptation to read these two parables, see that there's a similarity between the two of them, and assume that they're just teaching the the same basic point. And it's not as simple as that. They are teaching the same basic idea, but they're teaching it from two very different angles through the circumstances surrounding these two different men. 
If you notice the first man, the one who finds the treasure in the field, he wasn't looking for the treasure he found. He just stumbled upon it. He was just out in the field one day doing his thing. Again, probably slaving away for some rich landowner. He's working the ground. He's using his his hoe or his shovel or, or whatever farm implement he would be using to dig into the earth that day. And he's just slamming it down onto the ground over and over again, just like he's done thousands of times before that. But then this one time, this one time he slams that tool down into the earth and something's different. There's a distinct thud as this tool hits something solid in the ground. And it's not a rock or something like that. It's something that's, that's it's, it's hollow. There's a hollow sound to it. He picks his tool back up and strikes it down into the earth again where he hears this hollow thud one more time. And so he gets down on his knees and brushes away the earth to see what he's hitting. Maybe by that time he's actually broken into the container holding this treasure. So when he peers down into the earth, he sees this box, or or maybe it was a jar, but it's smashed open and there's these gold coins and, and precious jewels just sitting out there in the open down in the ground. And of course at that point the adrenaline starts pumping and his heart begins to race as he begins to realize that he's kneeling over a remarkable treasure, a life changing treasure. Point is, the guy didn't go looking for that treasure, did he? It just happened to him. That's very different from the second man, from the one who finds the pearl. That man was looking for his find. He has a wholesale dealer who went to the market that day looking for a deal. Pearls and jewelry are this man's business. He's very astute when it comes to the value of the items he's looking for. Well, as he's diligently searching through the hundreds of items for sale that day, assessing how much each item is worth and rejecting one item after another, possibly for hours at a time, he suddenly comes upon the very thing he was looking for, this pearl of remarkable value, an incredibly rare pearl. A rare pearl that's going to fetch an equally remarkable price. This man went into the day looking for a deal. And lo and behold, he found exactly what he was looking for. Now granted, this deal was probably even better than anything this man had ever hoped for. After all, while the merchant probably uh, never anticipated that he would come across an item so valuable that it would require him to sell everything that he owned in order to buy it, this is a significant windfall, even for this man, but, but at the same time, it's what he's been looking for. It's exactly the kind of thing that he wanted to find when he went shopping that day. So these men are, are, are different in this respect. One was looking for a fortune when he found it, and the other was not. Fortune just happened to him. These men are also very different in terms of the personal wealth they have in their possession. The first man could have been considered the owner of this treasure just for finding it. That when, he de- when he found that treasure in the ground, legally he could have maybe been considered the owner of the treasure just for finding it. But because he found it in another man's field, perhaps even while working for the other man, there would be some legal dispute about the rightful owner of the treasure if he were to dig it up out of the earth right away. He realizes that in order to claim this treasure without any sort of dispute, he needs to be the owner of this field before he digs it up out of the ground. 
So he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy this field and become the undisputed legal owner of this amazing discovery. And while it would take a decent amount of money to buy a field, at the same time, this wouldn't have been anywhere near the amount of money that this merchant would have had at his disposal when he sold everything that he owned to buy this pearl. So both men have found a great treasure. Who knows, the the man in the field may have even found a treasure as great as the worth of the pearl. But one great treasure was bought for the price of a field, while the other was bought at the price of a great treasure. The pearl was sold at its suggested retail price, so to speak, whereas the treasure in the field was not. It was bought at a significantly lower value. And yet both men had to sell everything they owned to buy their treasure. This shows us that these men are of significantly different means. One is a considerably poor man, while the other man is a man of considerable great wealth. And if I could put it this way, the, man, the, the first man is the man who discovers the first edition copy of the Declaration of Independence in an old picture frame that he bought at a flea market for $4.00. The second man is the guy who buys it at auction for $2.4 million. Again, these are very different men, both of whom have a, a remarkable treasure. And yet they both share one thing in common. They sold everything they had in order to acquire this treasure. So Jesus is coming at this point from from different angles in these two parables. In in the first parable, you would have a poor man who stumbles upon treasure unexpectedly. And in the second parable, you have a rich man who looks for a treasure and finds it. But the point is basically the same. Both men sell everything they have to get their treasure. Both men consider the treasure they found to be worth so much that they sell everything they have in order to acquire it. Now again, I think if we really stop to think about what Jesus is saying here, then we can recognize that the men in this parable represent those who come to the knowledge of the kingdom in different ways. The first man represents the irreligious individual. This is someone who isn't really concerned about the kingdom of heaven. They're just going about the business of life, digging their hole when suddenly they find themselves on top of the truth that will save their soul. They weren't looking for it. They weren't seeking it out. It just happened to them. They don't really have any means to purchase this kind of treasure on their own. They have very little knowledge of God's Word. They have no righteousness that they can offer to God in exchange for the treasure. They are poor. They have virtually nothing that they can offer in exchange for this. And yet they take everything they do have and offer it in exchange for the treasure. By extension, the second man becomes a picture of the religious person. This is someone who is concerned about the kingdom of heaven. They are eagerly seeking for eternal life. They are looking for truth. And they spend their time evaluating one option after another, after another, after another. Just trying to discover the hope that they are looking for. In Matthew's day, this would have been the Jew who was actively coming to look for the coming Messiah. Just just discarding one pretender after another after another until finally they come upon Jesus. 
This one is wealthy. They do have a knowledge of God's Word. They're able to recognize the value of the treasure once they come across it. They have a a form of righteousness, so to speak, and their obedience to God's commands. And yet they don't really have the means to purchase this treasure either. They have something, and yet even what they have is not worth as much as this great treasure. And so like the poor man, they offer everything they own in exchange for this treasure. If I could put it this way, the second man, the one who buys the pearl, he would be a man who is similar to Peter, Andrew, James, and John of Jesus' disciples. These were men who heard the preaching of John and came out to be baptized by him in preparation for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. These were men who, according to John 1, were there when John baptized Jesus and declared him to be the fulfillment of God's promises. They immediately started to pursue Jesus from that very moment. And it's actually kind of funny when you read how it all happens in John. John says, in, listen to this, and think about what's going on here. John says in John 1, 35-38, he says, uh, the next day, this is the day after Jesus was baptized, he says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, who are apparently Andrew and John. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now if you think about that, that's actually, that's actually kind of funny. John the Baptist is standing there talking to two of his disciples, Andrew and John, and he says, That's him, that's the Messiah I was telling you about. And Andrew and John, they just start following Jesus around. And Jesus finally turns to them and basically says, um, why are you following me? <laughs> and they answer by saying, can we come and sleep at your place tonight? <laughs> it's that immediate. They just totally ditch John and start following Jesus once they find him. And again, that's kind of funny, but it illustrates their, their level of commitment to Jesus. They were looking for the pearl And once they found it, they sold everything they had to purchase it. In fact, later on in Jesus' ministry, they do this quite literally. These same men were out tending tending to their nets when Jesus came and called them to be His permanent disciples, and they didn't hesitate one minute. They left their whole life behind. I mean, James and John even left their dad in the boat. Their departure was just kind of like, all right, see you later, Dad. You can take care of the nets, right? Great. Hey, don't wait up for us. I don't know when we'll be back. And they leave. They left their entire business, which appeared to be pretty lucrative, by the way. They left their their family. They left it all. They sold it all once they had the Messiah at their doorstep. That's what this second man is like. The first man is more like Matthew Levi. Now, to be fair, there's probably good reason to think that Matthew was one of the tax collectors and sinners that came out to be baptized by John. There's Probably even good reason to believe that, like Andrew and John, he was there when John baptized Jesus. But at the same time, Matthew had nothing. I mean, sure, he had a, a pretty lucrative setup to collecting taxes. He, he probably made a good amount of wealth doing that, but other than that, he had nothing. He would have been hated by his countrymen as a traitor, probably disowned by his family. He was a terrible sinner, culturally at the very least, if not actually at most. He had no business thinking that he 
a traitor to Israel, had any real business with Israel's Messiah who would come to crush the wicked and destroy the very nations that Matthew had sold out to. So, unlike Andrew and John, we have no record of Matthew following Jesus right away. He was probably baptized by John. He probably witnessed Jesus' baptism. But we have no reason to believe that after that, Matthew did anything else but then to return to his tax collecting booth, repentant, but sorrowful over the sins he had committed. So it would have been very much a surprise when Matthew looked up from his tax tax booth one day and saw the Messiah, the one he saw baptized by John, standing there in front of him, saying, as he said to Andrew and John, follow me. The kingdom of heaven would have, been, would have very much come upon Matthew unexpectedly. As a surprise, like the man in this first parable, Matthew would have practically stumbled upon this treasure, and yet like the man in this parable, he also immediately sold everything that he had in joy to obtain it. That's what Luke tells us, actually, in Luke 5. He says that Matthew rose at that very moment and left everything behind in order to follow Jesus. He sold everything for joy out of purchasing this remarkably great treasure. That's what these two men represent. They represent these two very different kinds of men, one of religious means and the other not, who both discover the truth of the kingdom of heaven in a different way. And so really what these parables show us, when you put them together, what they show us is that it doesn't matter what sort of background you come from. It doesn't matter if you've been seeking for the kingdom of heaven eagerly or if you've stumbled upon it by accident. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in a religious home or lived as a a degenerate pagan your entire life. The cost of entering the kingdom of heaven is exactly the same. Everything. It will cost you everything. Your entire life. This is because Jesus demands everything. He demands total allegiance, complete submission from everyone who enters into the kingdom of heaven. The repentance that Jesus demands throughout this gospel is a faith defined by complete dependence, total trust. It is a faith that expresses itself in a turning from idols to God, believing in the goodness of God to the degree that one begins to trust Him implicitly. And apart from that kind of faith, there can be no forgiveness. I feel like I've had to say this a couple of, every couple of weeks as we move through this gospel, but this is often misunderstood, so it bears repeating. Jesus demands repentance. And repentance in the true sense of the word, a turning from the worship of idols to God. And apart from this, there is no forgiveness. Every one of us in this world is born into the world alienated and hostile in mind. We are born into the world in rebellion to God. That's what condemns us. Unless that changes, unless a person repents of that rebellion, and to be clear, I don't mean that a person must become sinlessly perfect or anything like that, but until they cease their rebellion in their mind, in their heart, unless there is a desire to stop rebelling against God and instead to be reconciled to Him, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I say this because that's the gospel. 
That's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that though you were once alienated from God through Christ and by Christ alone, you can instead be reconciled to Him. Do you understand? The gospel is not just about eternal life. It's not just about forgiveness of sins. It's about reconciliation with God. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, these things are just the means to the real end, the real purpose, the real goal, which is a restored relationship with God. That's the point of the gospel. Reconciliation with God. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And if that's not something you're interested in buying, then you're not interested in what Jesus is selling. Not really. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that you wouldn't go to hell. He died on the cross so that you would be reconciled to God. And this means that if there's no repentance, and again, I don't mean just a change in behavior or or sinless perfection or something like that. I mean, if you do not in your heart turn from your attempts to run from God and instead seek to run to Him, then there is no forgiveness because you can't really accept the gospel apart from that kind of repentance. The gospel is about reconciliation to God. You can't accept that offer if you do not in some way desire to be reconciled to God. So there must be a change of heart. There must be a point where you cease your rebellion from God and instead seek to be reconciled to Him. Otherwise, you can't even really desire to accept the gift that Jesus is offering. So there must be a change of heart. Well, with this change of heart, this desire to be reconciled to God, With this naturally comes a desire to submit to God's will. Because you love God, because you trust Him, because you accept His authority, you therefore submit to His desires. This is the natural result of true, genuine repentance. And again, this repentance doesn't necessarily always result in obedience. The person who has this mindset will struggle with their sin, and yet there is a desire in them to see their sin eliminated, even as they struggle with it, because they want to be fully reconciled with God. And and, and not just legally, not just judicially, but relationally, in experience as well. They want to be reconciled to God. They want to be near Him. And this is expressed through their, through their desire to see their sin destroyed and to see it destroyed in the true, septi- true sense of that concept, which again means more than behavior modification. This person understands that at its core, sin is simply rebellion against God. It is rejection of God. It is a failure to believe God, to trust in Him, to love Him. It is a, it is a desire to push away from God. They want to see that gone. Again, they want to be reconciled. And so they strive to see themselves conform to the will of God so that in every way they might draw near to Him. They understand that the problem with their relationship with God isn't God. God desires reconciliation. The problem is in themselves. It is their sin. They push away from God in their sin. And so they long to see sin eliminated in their life. This is why Jesus demands complete submission, and it's why I can say that apart from this submission, there is no forgiveness of sin. Salvation is, listen, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith manifests itself with this kind of submission to God, and apart from that, 
It's not saving faith. This is why Jesus repeatedly throughout His ministry, not just once or twice, but repeatedly throughout His ministry, demanded total allegiance from everyone who sought to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't because that allegiance earned anyone anything before God. It's because only those who have repented in this way can truly even desire to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what these parables show us together is that it doesn't matter who you are, this kind of faith is going to change your life. I think we're willing to recognize that pretty quickly when it comes to the Matthews of this world. When it comes to the the poor tenant farmer who has to sell everything he has to buy the, the field that holds the treasure. Yeah, their life is going to be changed when they turn from a life of want and sin and turn to Jesus. Yeah, their life is going to be changed when they trade in the the poverty, uh, their poverty for the riches of Christ. But I mean, it's totally worth it, right? So Matthew had to give up his tax collecting. He gave up his earthly riches. But in so doing, he not only received eternal life, but I mean, he, he gave up the bitterness of his sin as well. He gave up the guilt and, and the alienation, all the penalty of sin that he experienced in his life. He gave that up as well. That's a good deal. He exchanged his poverty for the riches of the kingdom of heaven. We can recognize these points when it comes to a guy like Matthew. We can see how turning to Christ is going to greatly alter their life. That there is a a real exchange of one type of life for another when they come to Christ. And we can see the surpassing value there is for this individual to forfeit their former life in exchange for the treasure they find in Christ. But what about the Andrews and the Johns of the world? For, For that matter, what about the Pauls of the world? What about the so-called righteous? Do we recognize that they too must pay the same price? And can we see how they too must consider Christ to be worth more than all the things that they're leaving behind? Put yourself in the situation of the Jews who were seeking the kingdom when they found it. Put yourself in Andrew's shoes. Put yourself in Peter's or John's shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of Matthew's audience. In the shoes of these Jewish believers that had responded to the preaching of the Apostles' message. Do you think there was maybe a cost for them as well? After the blasphemy of the Spirit? Listen, after the crucifixion of Christ? Do you think there was a cost for them too? Absolutely there was. Belief in Jesus for them meant being ostracized from their community. It meant rejection by their family. It meant persecution from guys like Saul. I mean, that's really the context of this entire section of Matthew. It demonstrates that everyone who follows Christ is going to be rejected for it. And even more than this, think back to the the Sabbath controversies in Matthew 12. Think back to Jesus' answer about the practice of fasting in John 9. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Consider what Jesus and the apostles taught regarding the Mosaic Law and ask yourself, was there a cost for the righteous too? Absolutely there was. Following Jesus meant abandoning their community. Even more than that, it meant completely rejecting their practice of the law as they knew it. 
Listen, for them, belief in Jesus meant abandoning Judaism as they knew it. It was a total transformation of the way they approached God, even their entire way of life. Yes, not only must the irreligious surrender everything to follow Christ, but the religious must as well. Even the wholesaler must sell everything he owns once he comes across this pearl of great value. Yes, there is a cost to the religious, to the righteous. In fact, if we really stop to think about it, there's actually a higher price for them to pay than for the pagan. I mean, that's what we see in the parables, right? That's actually what, how, how it translates in real life too. After all, the Matthews of the world must only give up their poverty in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. So they're going to be rejected if they follow Christ. Big deal. <laughs> Matthew already experienced that, didn't he? Rejection was nothing new for a guy like him. Again, this is not a difficult exchange for a sinner to make. It's easy for, a man, for the man in the field to realize that he's better off selling all that he owns in order to gain the treasure. It's much more difficult for the wholesaler to choose to sell his riches to gain the pearl. The first man in this parable must only give up his poverty in order to gain the treasure, but the second man, he must give up the abundance of his riches in order to gain the pearl. The cost for everyone to enter into the kingdom is exactly the same. It's everything. Everyone must trade in their entire life in order to enter into the kingdom. The the blatant sinner must leave their sin behind, but the self-righteous, they must leave their righteousness behind as well. Listen, the repentance that Jesus demands in this gospel, that repentance is practiced by exactly no one before they come to Christ. Neither the sinner nor the self-righteous practice the righteousness that Jesus demands in this gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, no one does that apart from Christ. No one has that kind of humble, dependent, loving attitude. Neither the sinner nor the self-righteous do that. Everyone must repent when they choose to follow Christ, which means that belief in Christ will inevitably lead to a radical transformation of life for absolutely everyone who comes to Him. For the Pauls of the world as well as the Matthews. So here are the two questions that I have for you this morning in in response to all of this, in light of all that we've been talking about. The first question is this. Have you made this exchange? Have you performed the repentance that Jesus has demanded? Have you completely sold out your old way of life? for the sake of knowing Christ. It's not uncommon today to hear that you don't really, that there's really no cost to following Jesus. After all, salvation is completely free. Look, that's true. Salvation is free. There's absolutely nothing you can do to buy it or earn it. It's completely of grace that anyone is saved. It is free. But at the same time, it will cost you everything. There's nothing that you can give to God to purchase salvation. But at the same time, the faith that a person must practice to be saved, that will completely transform your life. 
And this is true for absolutely everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You will be changed when you come to Christ. The, the kind of attitude that Jesus is saying is required to enter into heaven. A poor and humble spirit. A, a spirit that trusts in the goodness of God and eagerly looks to Him to provide. I mean, again, the, the, the attitude that says, I'm a sinner that must trust in God for my salvation. No one naturally has this. This is something that everyone must repent to in order to be saved. And this means that absolutely everyone will be transformed when they come to Christ. Have you performed that kind of repentance? Have you exchanged your old way of life, your old way of rebellion, for a life of fellowship with God? Have you traded your commitment to, the, to idols for a commitment to instead find enjoyment in God. Have you seen this kind of transformation incur, occur in your life as a result of your faith in Christ? Some of you may know you have it. You're living in rebellion, you don't love God, you don't want to suffer in hell, but you don't really want to be with God in heaven either. And you realize that you must still make this exchange. Others of you may only think you have. You have a pretty good life. You're a moral person. And you assume that because of that, you're a Christian. But the dependence and faith that, that transforms you into a worshiper, that actually loves others, you don't really have that. You know you're a sinner and you try to be a moral person, but you haven't really turned to God in true dependence and faith, and so you haven't seen your life transformed by His grace so that you're increasingly filled with the love of Christ. You think you are saved, but you haven't made that exchange. You're, you're moral, but you haven't completely cast yourself onto Christ in faith in order to live and die for Him alone. And still others of you do have this faith. You have exercised this faith. And you continually see God's grace being poured out on your life as your sin is destroyed at the heart and as you grow in love and appreciation for God. Which are you? Where do you stand? Have you completely thrown yourself on Christ in faith, turning away from your sin to completely trust in Him? That's my first question for you today. And the second question is if not, why not? Suppose you do realize that you haven't made this exchange. You haven't turned to Christ with this, life, this kind of life-transforming faith. Why not? What are you waiting for? Suppose you're the poor man in these parables. You're the unrighteous. You haven't been looking for the kingdom of heaven, but you're suddenly realizing that it's right there in front of you. Why would you not repent and accept Jesus' call to follow Him? Are you concerned what you will lose in turning from your sin? If so, let me ask you, what will you lose exactly? Take stock of your life and ask yourself, what good thing has happened in my life as a result of my sin? How is my life better because of my sin? Really ask yourself that question and then ask yourself again, what do I have to lose in turning to Christ, really? Sin promises joy, but it only brings bitterness and death. You know that. You've experienced it. It's really, 
Is it really so hard to give up your poverty for the riches of Christ? And consider what the price of your sin will be in the end. Even if it's going to give you a fleeting kind of joy, is it really worth the eternal pains that you will suffer in hell for your rebellion against God? I mean, are you maybe just concerned what God will do when you do repent? Do you maybe wonder if He really will give you good gifts? If so, look to Christ. God gave up His Son so that you might live. Do you really think He's going to keep any good thing from you? So why do you wait? Why do you refuse to turn? Suppose you're the merchant in these parables. You're the one looking for eternal life. You've eagerly sought it out your entire life. And you've sought it out through your righteousness. But now you're realizing that there's a much greater treasure sitting here before you in Christ. It's going to require that you give all of that away in order to obtain it. Why would you not repent of your self-righteousness and instead lean on Christ and His righteousness and follow Him in faith? Are you concerned that abandoning your obligations to fulfill the true righteousness that Christ demands, one that may be less regulated, but one that is governed by love, are you concerned that you're going to be unprotected without any sort of righteousness to trust in? Does that scare you? Does it make it seem as if there's a loss in following Christ? Are you maybe concerned about how it will make you look to your friends when you begin to really submit yourself to Christ because it's going to lead you to associate with undesirable people that your self-righteous friends will look down on? Are you concerned by how it may be received by those who have a zeal for righteousness but without knowledge? Are you concerned about how they're going to look at you when you refuse to keep their man-made regulations? In short, are you afraid of being scorned by the, by the religious, by your own people, for the sake of knowing Christ? If so, understand that you wouldn't be the first to make that choice. Others have gone before you. And they can tell you whether or not it's worth it. Paul, for instance, did this very thing. He traded in his former life as a Pharisee, as a respected and loved member of his community, as a man confident in his own righteousness. And as this former persecutor of the faith sat in jail, now persecuted for the cause of Christ, he wrote this to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 4-11. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is it worth it for the righteous to to trade in their righteousness? To completely sell off their lifestyle? For the sake of gaining the riches found in Christ, Paul certainly thought so. 
He had no regrets. He found greater confidence in the righteousness of Christ than he ever, than he ever found in his law-keeping. And I think if he were standing here today, he would also tell you that he found more love and support in the church from those like the Philippians than he ever found from his fellow Pharisees. If you're the merchant, why would you ever hold on to your riches when you have this pearl of surpassing value sitting here right in front of you? Ask yourself, how has my law-keeping increased my joy in God? You know it hasn't. But Jesus offers an easy yoke and a light burden. The righteousness He calls you to brings real, actual joy. So why would you wait? You have nothing to lose in turning to Christ and everything to gain in turning to God. Regardless of who you may be, regardless of the perspective that you're coming from, the cost is the same, and so is the promise. Again, this is not a difficult decision to make. This is not a hard choice. In the words of the missionary Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The kingdom of heaven is worth so much more than any sort of treasure that you can try to keep in exchange for it. So if you're here this morning realizing that you have yet to make that exchange, let today be today. Don't wait. Sell it all in exchange for the exceedingly great treasure of Christ. Give it away. Go bankrupt for the kingdom of heaven. It's the greatest bargain you'll ever find. Let's pray.